Uh, my name's Yvonne Rand. I'm uh, an old friend of Sylvia's and, as some of you know, have come to this um, Wednesday morning group periodically when Sylvia's been away. Uh, my home path is uh, Zen, although I incorporate uh, the teachings and practices from the Theravadan stream and to some degree from Vajrayana in the way I teach and in the way I practice. <coughs> um, I'd like you to bear with me this morning. I was just diagnosed as having uh, osteoarthritis and am uh, due to have a hip replacement as uh, soon as I can get scheduled. I'm uh, actually quite relieved to know what's uh, up because my hip has been cranky for about five years. I am of the nature to have ill health. I am of the nature to grow old. I am of the nature to die. All that is dear to me and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There is no way to be separated from them. The great teachings on impermanence, right? <laughs> what I'd like to um, talk about with you this morning is um, the uh, cultivation of the characteristics of curiosity and interest in the context of meditation practice. And um, let me uh, reiterate what I mean by meditation practice, what I believe, uh, what I understand. I don't actually believe, but what I understand from uh, the Buddha's own teachings and from the teachings of great practitioners who have uh, followed from the time of the historical Buddha, is that in all the different schools of Buddhism uh, that have centrally the cultivation of uh, capacity for meditation, what is really being pointed out is the path for the cultivation of attention which is stable and has increasingly over time with practice and cultivation more and more energy. And that the um, process that we call meditation is really a gradual path and that in the language of the great uh, founder of one of the big schools of Zen in Japan, Dogen, we study the self in order to forget the self, and we forget the self in order to know all beings and things. And what that's really code for is studying the mind and training the mind. We um, by the time we stumble into some sense about the teachings of the Buddha and the practices uh, under the general category of meditation, uh, come to understand that what is referred to in the literature as conditioning 
is all of that training that happens beginning even before we're born in utero that um, leads us to have certain patterns and habits that we often are not even aware of having. And that one way of understanding the realm of those habits is that they're habits essentially of the mind, although we also have habits in the physical body, but they can't really be separated, I think. So um, our conditioning has a lot to do with what we would call our reactive patterns, reactive mental patterns and reactive emotional patterns. And we might say in contemporary language that what the Buddha is pointing out when he talks about suffering, the fact of suffering, that what is the ground of suffering for most, if not all of us, is the ground or realm of reactive, our reactions, our reactive mental and emotional patterns. I met recently with a uh, young man who, uh, as he put it, from the outside and from his resume, <laughs> would be described as very successful and he certainly must be very happy. He said, actually, I'm very unhappy. I'm quite miserable. And as I listened to him, I came to understand what he meant. He has a very strong habit of anger. And of course, uh, what accompanies the habit of anger is the patterning of constriction. So he clenches his jaw to the extent that he's driven his molars up into the jawbone. And although he's very good at the work he does, uh, nobody wants to work with him because he gets angry so easily. And people say, stop yelling. And he said, I wasn't yelling. He doesn't recognize that for some people who do not grow up with anger, um, something above a soft whisper sounds like yelling. <laughs> and to him, yelling is just what's regular talking. And not surprisingly, his father has uh, a great habit for anger and rage. So he grew up with um, great alertness about when the anger might come because he never knew when it would come. So I would describe his conditioning as including the conditioning of becoming accustomed to, used to anger. His con conditioning includes his own reactive emotional patterning of anger, of constricting. <coughs> I think you have the idea. 
So for um, many of us, when we first begin sitting down and being quiet for a while, what happens is it's, it's as though the dial, the radio dial of the mind gets turned up and we may be initially rather appalled with what the racket, <laughs> the racket inside our heads. And we can become very discouraged. This is, of course, where it helps a lot to have a spiritual friend or teacher, someone who has some training and experience who can help us uh, learn how to uh, study the mind without sinking with what we see and who can in time help us discover the practices for training what I would call uh, the untrained mind the conditioned mind. It's been trained in a certain way, but not consciously, not systematically, and often not for wholesomeness. As I was uh, sitting just now, I could hear uh, His Holiness's voice when he talks about, my religion is the religion of kindness. Someone who's been practicing with me for a number of years came to a half-day sitting that we had last Saturday. And at the end of my talk, uh, during the discussion period, uh, she raised her hand and she said, uh, yesterday, my husband and I met with a dog trainer. She and her husband, about a year ago, bought a um, schnauzer who has been on the dog show circuit and who flunked. <laughs> and then they recently got a, uh, another miniature schnauzer about six months ago. And um, the older one barks all the time. So they called in a dog trainer to see if they could get some help. And the dog trainer said, a dog who barks like this is almost certainly a dog who has been quite seriously abused. And the way to work with this dog and his barking is with great kindness. What's the other quality? Kindness. The two qualities that I remember, kindness and patience. And this woman said, after we met with the dog trainer, I thought, if only I could work with my own mind stream, my own reactive patterns with kindness and patience. And I would add the characteristic or quality of the mind that can be cultivated that of interest and curiosity. I think they're different. They're really just two ways of talking about the same thing. Uh, for many of us, it's hard for us to imagine being interested in the habits, the patterning, the conditioning uh, in our mind stream that leads to suffering. And yet, if we can bring this 
quality of curiosity and interest to what we begin to be aware of in our habit patterns, in our reactive patterns. That's the critical opening, the, the wedge in, if you will, to opening up the landscape of the mind so that we begin to see what we have some choices about. If, for example, anger arises, what I begin to discover with meditation practice is that there are some choices besides suppression and expression. There is the possibility of being present with without either stuffing it or screaming and yelling. And in fact, we begin to discover some practices that further uh, enhance our capacity for being present with what we are accustomed to thinking, I can't stand this, I have to distract myself, I want to go away, I want to get rid of. No good archaeologist says, I want to get rid of this broken piece of pottery or this little moldery piece of shit. <laughs> A good archaeologist is interested in all of it, studying all of it. And I would propose that for those of us who are on the a Buddhist meditation path, we might liken ourselves to being archaeologists. Interested in whatever arises, including what we have the reaction to of aversion, of, I hate this, I don't like this. Or very commonly, that kind of yapping voice of the judge, of the critic, telling us what crummy meditators we are, how we can't do this, I'm a terrible person, I'll always be this way, I'll never be able to change. This is where I appreciate the Gary Larson cartoons, you know, where the animals are listening to the people and the little <laughs> bubble above the people is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or you could say, oh, thinking. <laughs> thinking about. And uh, particularly with the conditioning <coughs> that we have in common in this culture, many, many, many of us have an overdeveloped capacity for thinking and not so much capacity for what is more body-based and breath-based, uh, what Eugene Genlin in his brilliant book, Focusing, talks about as the felt sense of what we're experiencing. I think of uh, his description of focusing as a kind of Western mindfulness practice. There's a more recent book based on his work by a woman who worked with him for a number of years called The Power of Focusing by Anne Cornell. And um, the whole practice 
is uh, a way of having a fresh description of what we're doing in meditation, which is to practice coming, coming back to the present. We start thinking about something. We, start, we get distracted. We start planning. We start reviewing something that happened. Oh, thinking. Come back to the breath, to the alignment of the body, to the groundedness, the heaviness, the weightedness of the jaw and arms. If we keep coming back to that centering process that brings us into the present moment, and this is, of course, what we're practicing in formal sitting and walking meditation. It's not that we don't get distracted. It's not that we don't go to reaction, but we have some process where, oh, reaction, come back to center. Uh, in the month of July, um, I led a three-week retreat at the small practice place where I teach and live and teach in Mir Beach. And um, we're right on the banks of, the, of Redwood Creek. And at this time of the year, when the creek is very low and the uh, water levels in the creek are important for the uh, fingerlings of the steelhead trout and coho salmon who spawn in the creek, the community's use of water is, uh, is meant to be kept as low as possible. So we had, uh, over the course of the three weeks, um, about 30 people. And so I rented a chemical toilet because that would help us not use so much water. And um, one of my neighbors saw the toilet be delivered and had a, what we might call a conniption fit. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't she she said it'll be so embarrassing to see everyone standing in line waiting to use the toilet <laughs> and it'll smell <laughs> we don't want to look at it so we sequestered the what we came to call the talcum powder baby baby-smelling <laughs> toilet, because that's what it smelled like, baby talcum powder. <laughs> Partway through the retreat, um, my neighbor and uh, one of the children who lived next door were cleaning the um, lichen off of the roof. <laughs> oh, can you smell that chemical toilet? We can smell it up here on the roof. So we got this irate phone call. I said, it's not possible. We, we just had it pumped this morning. Come over and smell it. <laughs> <laughs> I went and got a stepladder, and I got up near the vent smelling. I said, I don't get it. About an hour and a half later, we got a very apologetic phone call because the neighbors discovered that they had a very smelly load of compost that had just been delivered right outside their door. 
That's what they were smelling. Now, <clears throat> after you've been in a retreat for a few days, you, you become quite open. So um, the, the intensity of my neighbor's um, emotional reaction to the chemical toilet kept kind of rising. So uh, what I added to the centering practice was setting a very big spacious field. The property where we are is about an acre. And my next door neighbor on, on two sides are each about an acre each. So I set the field five acres. The acre of our place, the next door neighbor, the next door neighbor, up the hill an acre, and behind me an acre. Five acres. And in the midst of that, I placed myself and my neighbors. And all the heat that had kind of stuck on me like Velcro just vanished. So when I got the phone call complaining about the smell, you know, a week into the retreat, that big coming back to center with that big field was very helpful. And I could more easily bring interest and curiosity to my own reactivity. The kind of um, fear that arises for me from early childhood with having someone get very angry suddenly where I didn't see it coming. Can I be interested in that reaction in a way that allows me to begin to change my relationship to the reaction and begin to see the ways in which I either can choose to feed that reactive pattern or not. Allow it to rise, but also allow it to fall away. Allow it to have the mark of impermanence, which even our reactive mental and emotional patterns all have the mark of change. And when we experience strong reactive emotion, for example, as rising and then gone, our relationship to that emotional patterning begins to change. That's what this whole path is about, is our capacity to be present with, but not keep feeding, not keep re-energizing those old familiar pathways in the mind. And at the same time, to cultivate new pathways that are conscious, that are intentional, that are beneficial, that are wholesome, that are about the cultivation of kindness, of interest, of curiosity. Now, what I have to be careful with is that the curiosity I bring to what's arising doesn't lead to thinking about 
rather than being directly uh, experiencing what's arising. So there's a, a little edge there that I want to watch. There's a, um, uh, two biographies of Primo Levi, who's a, a hero of mine. For those of you who don't know his writing, I strongly recommend it. <coughs> he was um, an Italian chemist who spent almost a year in Auschwitz, but survived and writes, has written uh, very powerfully about that, the experiences of being in Auschwitz. The uh, two biographies don't get very good reviews, at least not in the review I read, but um, there were some passages from Primo Levi, and I'd like to read them to you, because I think they are, um, or maybe, certainly are for me, um, the source of inspiration for the benefit of curiosity and interest. <coughs> now this is a quote from Primo Levi after he had been uh, released from Auschwitz but before he had gotten home. Maybe I, I will come home shoeless but in compensation for my ragged state, I have learned German and a bit of Russian and Polish. I also know how to get out of many situations without losing my nerve, and how to withstand moral and physical suffering. I know how to make a cauliflower or turnip soup, cook potatoes in a hundred different ways, and I have been through an incredible variety of careers. Assistant bricklayer, sweep, porter, grave digger, interpreter, cyclist, tailor, thief, nurse, fence, stonebreaker. I have even been a chemist. Before Auschwitz, I was a timid, neurotic person, and afterward, this was gone. Isn't that amazing? Now, this is the passage that uh, pertains particularly to this topic that I'm bringing up for our consideration this morning. He said, I concentrated on the world around me. This is while he was in Auschwitz. I was conscious of living the fundamental experience of my life. The idea of having to survive in order to tell what I had seen obsessed me night and day. I never stopped recording the world and people around me. I had an intense wish to understand. I was constantly pervaded by curiosity. The curiosity of the naturalist who finds himself transplanted into an environment that is monstrous but new. 
monstrously new. Amazing, I think. So what I want to um, invite all of us to consider is the possibility of cultivating a constantly pervasive curiosity with our own mind stream, with our own patterning, with our own conditioning. Curiosity and interest instead of aversion and judgment, in my experience, leads to our capacity to see what we want to not keep re-energizing and reaffirming and to understand what we want to energize and affirm. For example, for those of us um, trained with the habit of judgment, and by this I do not mean the judgment which is appropriate to many circumstances of the day, but that uh, habit of judgment that has a kind of life of its own and that is almost always um, directed at ourselves, perhaps the world as well, but fundamentally to ourselves. For us to develop some curiosity about that voice or voices, to draw a picture or pictures of the critic or committee, <laughs> to actually do some uh, automatic writing where we keep the hand moving, not worrying about spelling and punctuation for say five or ten minutes, just when I make a mistake, some lead-in phrase like that, which, which gives us access to uh, the language of the habitual judging, which we then don't read for a week or two. We begin to develop some curiosity and interest about, well, whose voice is this? Is it mother? Is it father? Is it school teacher? Is it older sibling? Is it a, a, a cluster of voices? One time a woman I was working with uh, stumbled on the fact that, um, not very difficult for her to stumble onto, her habitual voice was her mother's voice, which she had incorporated so that it had become her own. But she said, um, in this particular manifestation, my mother's voice manifested as an opera singer. So she drew pictures of the habitual judge as opera singer. And she'd write out, you know, the repeated lines. One day we sang them together operatically. It was marvelous. We <laughs> fell on the floor laughing. And of course, by the time I met this person, her mother's voice had become her own. 
I remember one time when somebody did, did this kind of writing that I'm suggesting to discover what's the language, what's the uh, habitual critic saying. And after this woman wrote for 10 minutes and she read what she'd written, she said, I wouldn't talk this way to my worst enemy. Hmm. But of course, the critic was so familiar that she wasn't consciously registering the kind of abusiveness in the language of this voice, which was a voice in her own mind stream. And there are, of course, a whole cluster of practices for working with habitual judgment. The first one to just begin to notice but don't linger long enough to get sunk in the content of what the judge is saying. You'll get lost. That's the habit that's the reaction to the reaction of habitual judgment is, is the storyline. So you shift to some neutral body sensation, take a breath in with that. So along with um, noticing and beginning to see, oh, there's a pattern here, beginning to know the gender or number of voices, what the voices are saying, there's also the possibility of literally picking the mind up from the ha habit of judgment to gratitude. Quick, ten things I'm grateful for. And then I may, if I'm lucky, begin to have some curiosity and interest in, oh, what do I notice are the consequences of placing my attention briefly on 10 specific things I'm grateful for. I may discover that I'm actually a little attached to my habit of judging. That's very useful. Oh, then I might be curious about, well, what am I getting out of this cranky, critical, wrinkled-nosed, complaining mind? That line of inquiry can be extremely interesting. There is a place for some thinking about, well, what do I notice? But we have to be careful that we don't feed thinking as a way of getting away from direct experience. I think that the cultivation of interest and curiosity in what arises that is the ground of our suffering can be tricky if we're not going to sink in visiting the scene of our suffering. I think that it's tricky. And my suggestion is have the visits be brief. Have the visits be in the middle of the five-acre field. And know how to notice, oh, aversion. Oh, constriction, oh, judgment, and come back to center. So that in time, 
the centering process becomes so easy that there's a kind of slipstream called coming back to center. I begin to notice when I'm present, when I'm fully present, I'm not in reaction. Oh, how interesting. There are times in my experience, both personally and uh, sitting in the teaching seat, listening to people tell me about what's coming up for them in their spiritual practice. There are times when one may feel like one is dropped into a monstrous environment, to use Primo Levi's language. But when I read these passages which reminded me of some of his books that I've read. What came up for me was if he could come out of Auschwitz with all of these benefits, could we, each of us, come out of our conditioning, our suffering, with some of the same kinds of benefits. From my own experience, I would say loudly and convinced, yes, we can. One of the things I love about the teachings of the Buddha is the Buddha's own encouragement to not take anything on someone else's word, on someone else's say-so to find out for ourselves what's possible. Because, of course, training the mind is not something anyone else can do for me. Nor can I do anything about anyone else's mind stream. Often we distract ourselves from doing what only I can do by trying to you know, fix somebody else's mind string. doesn't work. There's a verse that I'm very fond of, uh, which my husband and I have dubbed the self-reliance verse. The Buddhas cannot wash our sins away from with water. They cannot remove our suffering with their hands. All they can do is teach the Dharma. I am my own protector. We, if we are longing for the good mother and good father, we may not be thrilled with that uh, aspect of the Buddha's teachings. But I think it's highly respectful. Um, is an encouragement to be our own loving parents and to do what only we can do, which is to study the mind and train the mind, to see the difference between what arises, that is the evidence of the untrained mind, and what becomes possible with the trained mind. The easiest point for training can be 
the capacity for gratitude. Completely opening, opens the heart. Even though we may drag ourselves kicking and screaming into the territory. <laughs> okay, I think that's enough for me. I imagine some of you have things you'd like to bring up on this or some other <coughs> topic. Yes? One of the things about anger uh, that I find very hard to pull myself back to center is when I'm very tired. Yes. Very frustrated, particularly very tired. Yes. It's very hard then to pull back to yes. some type of center. And I feel that part that gets angry just leap out of yeah. it. Almost gives me energy. Right. Tired. Well, I think one thing um, that's important to see about anger is that anger has as an accompaniment enormous energy. And the energy of anger often uh, comes up in a way that we, we move, we act um, in situations where we might not act without that, the energy of anger. And for many people who have an anger habit, if you will, making a distinction between the emotional state and the accompanying energy can be very useful. Um, and I think that, that the point you're bringing up about anger arising more easily if you're tired or frustrated, or heaven forbid both, um, is very, uh, very interesting. Oh, if I'm interested in um, not having the anger, the reactive anger be in the driver's seat, it's useful for me to take care of myself, to pay attention to not getting overly tired. That's one possibility. But also, I think anger, we use this word as though we're talking about a single range emotionally. And actually, I think what's much more useful is to think of anger on a continuum that starts with irritability, frustration, disappointment, gets a little bit irritability, grouchy, gets a little hotter and hotter, and then at the very hot end is rage. Now at the hotter end of that continuum, I sometimes uh, have the experience that at that end it's, it's like a plane takes off. Once the plane takes off, I just have to hope I can hold on to my hat, not do too much damage and land. But where I can begin to work with training the mind with respect to habitual anger is at the cooler end. If I begin to notice irritation, frustration, irritability, oh, that's where I have a chance to come back to center. Notice, oh, grouchy. I remember some years ago um, when uh, one of our beloved dogs, a, a little skipper key, whose name was Balcha Chakur, which means black dog in Basque. <laughs> we seem to rescue dogs from unwholesome environments. And 
we rescued her from the un unwholesome environment of a friend of ours. <laughs> and every morning, she'd sleep on the bed between my feet, and every morning she would kind of wait for some little flicker of my eyelids looking like maybe I was about to open them, so that when I would open my eyes, there she is. <laughs> Let's get up. And um, I had a patch of mornings. Leave me alone. I'm not ready to get up. Brushing her aside. Irritable. And um, I had not, surprisingly, would go in the kitchen. And whenever the rest of the family would get up, I'd still be grouchy and irritable. So after about a week or two of that, I noticed that I was on a kind of run. <laughs> so I decided to take my mind in hand and um, made a conscious decision, put a kind of imaginary sign around her neck to greet her warmly. Good morning, Balcha. Shall we go to the kitchen, turn on the water kettle? Maybe we could sing. She and I used to do duets. So, ooh. <laughs> of course, she would jump around and go into the kitchen. And what I noticed was that that run of irritability and grouchiness just vanished. Because, of course, when we first wake up in the morning and just before we go to sleep at night are two periods of time when we have the highest degree of absorbency. Whatever we say, whatever quality of mind we're practicing in those moments tends to drop in rather significantly. Oh, I also found if I would go in the kitchen and announce to the household, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed, I'm feeling grouchy, everybody would relax, not take anything I would say or do personally. And the very owning, the very naming, oh, I'm feeling grouchy, the grouchy disappeared. So um, there are ways of working at that cooler end of what then blossoms if it doesn't get tended to into anger, more reactive anger. Um, it's much more possible. Now, um, you know, the classical quality of mind that is the um, is is taught in relationship to anger is the quality of patience a mind suffused with patience is a mind in which anger does not arise but what do we do in the meantime <laughs> and um, you know, there's a, in one of the early texts, probably more than one, there's this admonition, don't hang out with louts. <laughs> a lout is somebody who's given to unwholesome behavior. Anger is one of the characteristics. And of course, the challenge is if I'm the lout I'm hanging out with, if I'm the one with loutish habits, <laughs> And um, being kindly with those habitual, conditioned characteristics can go a very long way
towards beginning to allow them to rise without continuing to keep feeding them energetically. Yeah. On the other end of the scale, what about if you're, um, if you find that it's not anger that you, you're dealing with, but it's, um, it's being sometimes overly giving and wanting to take care of someone. And uh, I had an incident this past week where that happened, and I, I mean, I reacted so quick. Yeah. And I gave away so much. Um, the Buddhist path is not about fixing. It's about cultivating our ability to be present with whatever arises within ourselves, with others, etc. So I very strongly um, resonate with your description, being an old ambulance driver myself. <laughs> I grew up in an alcoholic family and I was the adult by the time I was pretty young and was expected to take care of everybody. Um, one of the practices that helped me with, two practices that helped me with this particular habit. One was um, to be willing to act on what I see when I see it, even if it's a year later. And when I am willing to act on an insight when I have it, the lag time begins to close. If I get on my case about why didn't I see this, then I'm just doing reactive habitual judging and that's a very stuck place. So um, I would find myself driving to a meeting which I'd agreed to go to and I'd get halfway across the Golden Gate Bridge and realize, oops, I shouldn't be going to this meeting. I'd pay the toll, turn around, go home. Everybody would say, but we thought you were going to the city to this meeting. And I said, oops. Do not say too late. So I had a, quite an extended lag time between the impulse to fix, seeing it, interrupting the impulse and then, you know, sometimes for a while having to call up and say, made a mistake, agreed to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, it doesn't fit. I lied. <laughs> <laughs> what I began to see as I did this noting practice of noticing, oh, here's the impulse to fix, was this was a way for me not to experience my own suffering. I was distracting myself by tending to the suffering of others. And out of that insight, I began to work with this question. 
which if I could remember the question, I could always answer it. Is what I'm about to do, including taking care of myself, or instead of taking care of myself? And as I said, as long as I could remember the question, and I just pasted it around my life, on my calendar, in the desk drawer where I kept my pen, on the bathroom mirror, near the telephone, on the dashboard of the car, and I kept changing the signs, but I kept bringing the question up until it had really dropped in. When I would review the day, is what I did with X, Y, or Z were those instances of instead of or including. I also went to the toy store and I got a toy ambulance. <laughs> and I brought it home and I put it on blocks. <laughs> My kids were great. They said, oh, there she goes on a save. <laughs> a little playfulness uh, with um, a habit like that that can be painfully deep uh, can go a long way. Painfulness and inventiveness. This is where the curiosity and interest will, will help us come to creative and imaginative ways of bringing our attention to what we're used to not bringing our attention to. And if we aren't judging what we see, then we begin to have this pathway of um, having the rea reaction arise, but not following it. So it's our relationship that's changing to the impulse to fix, rescue, take care of. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why there's such a high incidence of burnout in the caregivers' um, professions is because uh, a gang of ambulance drivers. Very, very high incidence of rescuing the world so we don't have to experience and work with our own suffering. And, you know, we didn't just make this up for fun. I mean, we got some conditioning growing up about this is what we should do. We grow what we, as adults, and find ourselves doing what doesn't fit because as kids we were told we were responsible for how the adults in the family felt, for example. Yeah. Yes. I think one of the things that you're saying right now that resonates strongly and is a reminder to me is that um, the peaceful curiosity for me yes. has to do a little bit with I do find myself something is not quite right in my mind and it will keep working away until it will come to the forefront. Right. This isn't a conscious process. Right, right, right. And the difficulty for me for most of my life is that when it comes to the forefront and I can begin to see from a different perspective, uh -huh. I have a, it's a powerful judging tendency to gain a bit of understanding, but along with it is a wishing and attachment 
that I could have done it differently right. then. And of course, I, none of us really has control over the then anymore. That's that, correct. That is gone. But there is an eno a potential. It took me a long time to begin to awaken to this. There is the potential of the excitement of the very instant mm -hmm. when I become aware and I can separate myself from whoever I was then and say, in some bizarre way, because it's not rational, I am not that person then. I am this person now, and I've been given this gift at this very moment mm -hmm. of becoming aware. And even though I cannot change the then in that way, slowly over time I began to discover the possibility of celebrating that instant when I am free. Because mm. all that means is that I have now welcomed, just for that instant, that I will not do in this instant what I did then. <laughs> and that therefore I can welcome and um, appreciate, but most of all be relieved of that then person. And I become an unknown, and it's very frightening. I think that's the piece of it for me that has always held me back. It is very frightening for me to not know who I am and what I am in that new moment. But as I've begun to experience myself as so repeatedly trapped, I had this urgency about letting go because to repeat that entrapment is so painful. Well, there's several things I notice from what you just said. One is a kind of apology about what you experience. It's not rational. That's our conditioning, that what's rational is what is uh, reliable, uh, we should always be rational, etc. This is where the focusing work, and I think I really recommend The Power of Focusing by Anne Cornell, where you begin to have a felt sense that's in the body that you can talk to rather than trying to understand it. It's more a way of entering into a kind of dialogue which comes out of curiosity. That's what I mean by curiosity. Now, the other, um, the other uh, point that you bring up about fear arising when you don't know who you are. This is, of course, at the core of the whole Buddhist path, isn't it? Knowing who we are. Some years ago, um, the Zen teacher Robert Aiken was asked, do you have to be somebody before you can be nobody? <laughs> and um, his answer was resoundingly yes. Um, but there's also, we have in our habitual thinking a certain way of identifying ourselves, solidifying the sense of self that's not accurate with characteristics. Oh, this is, this is who I am. And of course, what's so interesting is that uh, also part of our conditioning is we should know. The, the mind of don't know is in our culture and educational systems um, not respected. That's not true for people who do creative work. It's not often true for people who are um, do physical work. 
And it's totally not true for people who are effective at problem solving. Um, there's a, a contemporary Zen teacher um, who shouts at his students over and over and over again, keep the mind of don't know. It's what Suzuki Roshi, uh, my first Zen teacher, called beginner's mind. That mind of meeting each thing, each being, each thing, each moment as though for the first time. So to cultivate a different relationship to not knowing might be um, very interesting and fruitful. And it may be that the fear arises about what's unfamiliar. How often we human beings go to what's familiar even when it isn't wholesome. That's why we keep reinforcing our reactive patterns because that way, well, at least I know who I am. Otherwise, it's, it's as though I'm doing a free fall. Can I stand that? Go to the body when that happens. If my attention is resting in the body, on the breath, I can be present with any emotional state, including fear. There was somebody over here that had their hand up. Yes? Yes. And I just was wondering how many kalpas it will take before. I think, for example, we crossed the street the other day in the city, and it was almost at the curb, and some tourists were seemed confused, and they stepped into the same street to go, and some guy in a big white truck really aggressively um, started blowing at them. And I was almost, I knew he wasn't blowing at me, but I just went black for a moment. I went and everything I could do to turn around and, and talk him. And yeah. those, in the combination of anxiety and fear and confrontation, when those things arise like that, right. I just, I, you know, you can talk, you know, and I've forgotten it until just now, but for a moment there, and I just, you know, how you do this? Well, you know, um, my experience is that fear, uh, that anger is often the presenting emotion and what's underneath it is much more likely to be grief, fear, anxiety, something in that realm where we feel more vulnerable and that the anger is the emotion where we may feel some safety with the energy of anger and the question is then how do we drop to what's under it. Um, I have actually um, more than once in this room taught a practice that I've done for many years of being with a negative, strong, highly energized, reactive emotions like anger and fear on the breath. And my experience is that you can, in one meditation, have the experience, even if it's just for a nanosecond, uh, if the difference between being present with the emotional state than thinking about it is huge. To actually be present with the emotional state with the tenderness of a parent with his or her only newborn child 
As I breathe in, I know anger within me. As I breathe out, I know anger within me. As I breathe in, I know anxiety within me. As I breathe out, I know anxiety within me. Whatever. And I keep the labeling very tentative so that as the emotion changes, I stay with the emotional state. And I do not initially try to stay with the experience of the emotion sitting still. I walk. And I don't start with Everest. I start with some small dose that I have some sense of being able to be with. And my experience and with people I've taught this meditation to, it's a basically a five-part meditation, but the whole shift in one's relationship to the emotion happens in the first step. And this relationship, I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive to bring that quality of nurturance, curiosity, interest of a, of a brand, a parent with their brand new, only newborn child to anger, to anxiety, to fear. It's like, are you kidding? But to do that on the breath with that quality of gently holding at the heart chakra allows me to actually have the experience of the arising and vanishing of whatever emotion I'm experiencing. I begin to run into all the little ways I have of keeping it fanned. Name-calling the guy in the truck. And raising my fist. Calling him obscene names. Whatever. Going home and telling the story. Storytelling can keep a lot of reactive emotion alive and well. And the, emo the energy of those reactive emotions leaves us with the thought, it'll take kalpas for me to get rid of this. The trick is to not try to get rid of. The trick is, am I willing to be present and fully experience what's arising and also experience the vanishing? That's changing my relationship to these emotions. It's not about getting rid of. Getting rid of is our version of aversion. It's a stuck place. It doesn't work. We're running out of time. Okay. Two questions and then we'll... The vanishing. I mean, it doesn't just vanish, does it? There's yes, it does. Traces? No. Some things may have some smell afterwards, but there's an awful lot that just rises and poof. And if you're... Go Oh, what I want is to experience the poof. You've got to be willing to experience the whole ride. Willingness. Willingness to show up.
this is where being kind and patience is really important. So don't try to do what I'm talking about for very long. Maybe not even a whole breath. Maybe just an inhalation or an exhalation. Okay, last question, yes. Well, you know, this is where the Tibetan sacred art tradition is really useful because there are manifestations of what are called the terrifics, fierce forms of, of uh, compassion and wisdom. And I'm telling you, you don't want to meet them on a dark alley when you don't have your head screwed on straight. But to see this terrific form arising out of compassion can be really inspiring. There are times when, you know, it's the tough love school. But the difference, it, depending on what your motivation is, depending on what, what emotional state the fierceness arises from can make a huge difference. Huge. If I have a little kid who's about to run out in the street, I'm not going to say, come back. I'm going to yell, but I'm not going to yell out of anger. I'm going to yell out of protection and concern. And I think finding one's way into that um, takes practice. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.